Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. Thanks for listening to the best Houston sports podcast. And if you're a first timer, welcome to the party. We're brought to you by my bookie. I'll tell you a little bit more about my bookie and an awesome deal for you listeners a little bit later. Speaking of betting, I'm going to predict you will learn a lot about these new Texans players that Bill O'Brien just brought aboard. You're about to hear from Clay Ferrero, who covers the Dolphins on Laramie Tunsil, Kenny Stills, and Cornell Armstrong. Following that interview, you'll hear my conversation with Pete Smith, who covers the Browns for the Locked On Podcast Network. I ask him about ex-Browns Duke Johnson, Carlos Hyde, Darren Fells, and Barkevius Mingo. So a lot of great information in this one. Without further ado, let's get it started. On the line with me is Clay Ferrero from the ABC affiliate in Miami, Local 10 WPLG. And Clay, I know you're busy out there dodging hurricanes, so I appreciate you taking the time. Here in Houston, we have a quarterback, though, dodging defenders. And I want to start off by (laughs) asking you just uh, what kind of bodyguard is Deshaun getting in Laramie Tunsil? A really, really good one. Uh, and, uh, you know, obviously everybody wants to know, right, what is he? Is he top five? Is he top 10, top 20? Is he overrated, underrated? I don't know that I'd put him in the class of your your Smiths, your Armsteads, like the elite of the elite. But I also don't buy the whole pro football focus thing that had him, what was it, like 25th or 23rd, something like that, whatever it was. He's a really, really good left tackle. And, and not only that, but – a young ascending player, uh, a guy who who works hard um, and and was well liked by teammates. And uh, the, you know, I think the thing about him the last couple of years, you know, when they drafted him, uh, they initially started him out at guard because they were pretty pretty well stacked at the tackle position, or I guess as well stacked as as the Dolphins have have been over the last thirty years. Um, but uh, they they had more of a need at the guard spot, and they they wanted to get him on the field. And so, you know, after year one, he was able to, to take over for Brandon Albert, kick back out to tackle at his natural position. And, and so I think it's been a little bit of a, a combination of, you know, he gets to the NFL, he switches positions, and, and then he switches back. So he had to learn one spot, then learn another, to where I think last year you really started to see the, the real Laramie Tunsil and, and the – the skills that I think people expected to see out of him straight out of college. You see him as a future Pro Bowl, All-Pro type player. Is he going towards that? Pro Bowl for sure. Uh, you know, All-Pro is is so tough because you're talking what at that uh, left tackle spot. You're talking what two players get there every year, and so potentially. I, I mean, I think he's certainly got that ability, and and there's so much else that goes into it. He has to stay healthy and and all of that, but um, you know, and I and I understand that there's a, a bit of a narrative that. Uh, O'Brien may have paid a little bit too much and, oh, well, this is what happens when you don't have, have a GM. I think if you're a team like Houston that has identified a problem spot and, and uh, a spot that may be the difference between you just sneaking into the playoffs and then getting in there and doing some real damage, then I think you, you do what you have to do. And when you've already got your quarterback, you're set there, you're set in a lot of other positions I, I, I really like the move. I know they gave up a lot. I think it's one of those deals that worked out well for both teams because I think it's pretty clear what the Dolphins are doing right now. They're tanking, and, and they need as much draft capital as they can get. 
So I, I think it's just one of those moves that if you're Houston, you, you take the chance on him, even if he stays at this level, right? Even if he stays at this level, then he immediately solidifies that line. And, and I think that's really important given what at least we've been able to see out of the Houston offensive line over the last couple of years. Yeah, I mean, the thought here is just that maybe giving up that second round pick was a little bit too much because it was, you know, could be just too bottom end. You would hope for uh, the Texans that there would be bottom end first rounders and you're getting uh, a starting left tackle, which aren't aren't easy to come by. Is is that kind of your thought is maybe the second round they, there was a little bit much or did this, you think maybe the Dolphins were like, well, I don't know if we want to give up Laramie Tunsil, you know, just for two back. So we need something more. And, and, and the second round pick was like, okay, that's the final straw. We got it. We got to do it now. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's exactly what happened. I, I don't think they would have let him go for less than that. This was not a situation where the Dolphins were actively shopping Laramie Tunsil. I think what obviously happened here, I, I think the Dolphins genuinely really liked Davion Clowney. And I, I think it was pretty clear that, that Houston really desperately needed that left tackle. And so I think during the course of conversations, they, they tried to find a way to make that work. And then, look, obviously, from Jadavion Clowney's perspective, you're going into a franchise year. You, you need to get some stats. You need to flash. And the Dolphins do not have a whole lot of talent on defense. So I can understand why he didn't want to come here. But then it was pretty clear from that point on that, okay, maybe this wasn't as much the Dolphins wanting Jadavion Clowney as it was the Texans knowing that they had a very, very valuable trade piece in Jadavion Clowney and, and really desperately wanting that left tackle. And clearly the Dolphins let them know, look, we're, we're willing to part with him if you're willing to part with a lot. And, and at the time that included Clowney. And then once they traded Clowney to Seattle, it was okay. Well, you have a couple of other pieces that we would really, really like. And, uh, and this is what it will take to make it happen. And I think it's pretty clear based on this move, Bill O'Brien saw a, a real legitimate potential franchise tackle as the biggest hole on the squad. And, and he's looking at this also as, as a head coach and, and someone who, look, man, if you're a coach, you're, you're looking year to year. You're not necessarily looking two, three years down the line. It's rare that you have somebody like a Bill Belichick who just stocks these draft picks year after year and gets so many compensatory picks. You're looking year after year. And I get it. Maybe in two years you'll look back and say, man, it would have been really nice to have a, a second-round pick here or, or even a first-round pick here. But, man, let's face it. You, you, you hope that you can get a left tackle, a franchise left tackle with one of those high picks. And, you know, let the salary stuff work itself out. In this case, you're, you're getting a guy that can be that. One thing on the Dolphins, there is a narrative out there that, okay, yeah, they, they don't care about winning this year. They may not be sold on Josh Rosen. If they aren't sold on Josh Rosen, maybe Laramie Tunsil isn't going to matter if you get, say, Tua as your next quarterback because his blind side is the other side. Is that something that you're hearing down in Miami? I think it's certainly out there. And, and I, they're not going to, to publicly say that, of course. But I think it's been pretty clear that Stephen Ross, the Dolphins owner, has been enamored with Tua Tonga-Bailoa. And now, with that said, it's, it's such a crapshoot, right? I mean, look, they're tanking. I don't think there's any doubt about that. But they could go 1-15, and, and Cincinnati goes out there and goes 0-16. Or, you know, Arizona bottoms out, and, and, and they, they end up 0-16. You know, I mean, there, there's always that chance that one of these teams, uh, for lack of a better term, gets ahead of them in the draft order. Uh, and obviously Arizona wouldn't need a quarterback. But 
somebody else may want one worse than, than the Dolphins do. And so I, I don't think that would happen. I think it's pretty clear based on what they're doing. They've got their sights set on Tua, and, and in your, uh, you know, in your your example, your scenario, yeah, you wouldn't necessarily need that left tackle as badly. You need a right tackle, um, and and I think the moves of the last week or so have solidified that more than ever. You know, the last I think the last few months, ever since they made the Josh Rosen move, it was okay. Yeah, we know they're we know they're hitting the reset button and Mike Tannenbaum and Adam Gase made some, some pretty poor decisions as far as restructuring guys in order to uh, bring in free agents, basically put band-aids on, on something that needed uh, a lot more than a band-aid. And, you know, they restructured Ryan Tannehill's deal last year. They restructured Rashad Jones deal so they could bring in a, a Robert Quinn and a Danny Amendola. And, and what that, what that caused was, a need for them at some point to to rip off the band-aid. And so they're doing that in 2019 and, and they're taking all those dead cap hits right now, other than Rashad Jones, they'll probably swallow that next year. But um, yeah, it's a combination of potentially not needing the left tackle as badly. If you do get Tua, and, and also looking at this and saying, okay, let's get some picks. Uh, let's take the Cleveland Browns approach from a few years ago and, and stockpile them, and and hopefully we're able to build and fortify those lines, which have been uh, real issues for a long time here. The other part of the deal for the Texans was Kenny Stills. What can you tell us about Kenny Stills? What kind of a player is he? Really good player. I think um, his his best attribute here was tracking the deep ball. And there was a narrative for a while that, oh, Ryan Tannehill is a terrible deep ball passer. He just he can't get it done. Couldn't connect with Mike Wallace. Well. All of a sudden, in comes Kenny Stills, and, and they turn out to be a, a pretty darn good deep ball combo. Um, the issue with Tannehill was was pocket presence, and uh, he, he just never worked out. But he and Stills had a real chemistry, especially when it came to that. The other thing he can do really well and has historically is he can run out of the slot really well. So he, he's, he's uh, scheme flexible, if you want to call it that, where you can – put him on the outside and send him deep. I know you guys have Will Fuller, who's really, really good at that as well. Um, but, you know, you can move him around a bit. And and I, I think he's, he's still really productive. I don't know that he's quite at the level that he was a couple of years ago. Um, but for what you you got him for, which was essentially a throw-in in this deal, why not? And, and for a team that clearly wanted an extra weapon on the outside, uh, you got one. And, and I think he's somebody, he's a pro, and he's going to get out there, and, and he knows what he's doing. Why was he going to get released by the Dolphins? I know there's a bit of a narrative that this this may have been because of uh, the kneeling, the comments about Jay-Z, and the comments about Stephen Ross. And, and I don't buy that. I, I think this was an issue where the Dolphins had a, 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 lot of, a lot of good young receivers. Not great. They don't have a number one guy, but Kenny Stills wasn't a number one guy. And so, you know, they – uh, I think they feel like they struck gold with Preston Williams, the undrafted rookie out of Colorado State. They've got uh, Devontae Parker, who was on a one-year deal, uh, which could be two years, but it's likely going to be one year. Um, they have good young guys, added Alan Hearns. And I think it felt like given the the money that they they were going to pay Stills to essentially, you know, Stills is a much better player on a team that is ready to win now. He's a, a much better second, third, fourth option on a team that uh, needs that as opposed to a team that's not going anywhere this year. So I don't think this had anything to do with the off-the-field stuff as much as it was purely a, a football move where 
they're going in a, a direction of younger players. And I think it probably coincided with, with why they were willing to trade Tunsil and why they were willing to, to trade Kiko Alonso um, and make some of the other moves that they did. Quietly and under the radar move that the Texans did in the last few days was they picked up uh, Cornell Armstrong. They signed the cornerback that the Dolphins just cut. What can you tell us about him? I know he was drafted sixth round last year. Is that right? Yes. Uh, and special teams guy, I think uh, they feel like that's where his, his biggest contributions would have been. And I think that from their perspective, look, you're, you're in this youth movement. It, it's a pretty similar move to what they did with Vincent Taylor, the defensive tackle that they also let go. And that was a bit of a surprise here. I think out of all the moves, that was the one that surprised people here. But I think they're looking at this like, okay, why are we going to keep guys around? They're going to have very limited roles, uh, you know, in the, the second, third, fourth years of their contract when, you know, we're probably going to end up getting guys in the draft with this multitude of picks that are going to do very, very similar things coming up in the next couple of years. So, um, you know, m- much like all the rest of these moves, but probably to a lesser extent, this is just, this is just another function of they're rebuilding, uh, they're tanking. <laughs> I, I think rebuild is probably too soft of a word at this point. They're tanking. And, and this is going to be a bad year down here. And they're hoping that ultimately it pays off like the Cleveland Brown situation did where they're able to stockpile some of these picks, hopefully hit on the quarterback. And, you know, two, three, four years down the line, you're talking about a, a different situation here where finally a franchise has bottomed out and is ascending as opposed to year after year being mediocre. Did Armstrong take many snaps last year at cornerback? And is there any potential there? Where, where would he be if he's playing? Is he playing in the slot? Is, is he, uh, you know, where is he at? They're going to try him out all over. And, and I think the issue, <laughs> the issue with a lot of these Dolphins players was there was some real discontent, some real discord over the last couple of years with Matt Burke as a defensive coordinator. And, you know, you saw it manifest itself last year where Rashad Jones essentially refused to go back into a game at one point. And um, I think you had some guys that, uh, you know, whether Matt Burke's scheme just wasn't communicated properly or some players that, that didn't exactly fit that scheme very well, that were forced to do things they weren't really comfortable with. Um, you know, I, and I know it's a, it's a long answer to a short question. I think it's one of those where we haven't seen enough of him in, in a scheme that has proven itself to be very good to know exactly how well he's going to play. And, and I think, what the Dolphins saw in training camp was, you know, we get a lot of defensive backs and, and he's not, he's not necessarily quite up to the level of some of the other guys that we brought in. Um, can he contribute special teams wise? Yes. Could he make a run at one of those spots in the defensive backfield? Sure. If you need it. Um, but I, I don't think, put it this way. I don't know that he's the type of player that you're going to plug him in week one in new Orleans and, and hope that he's going to come up and, uh, and, and help you out with a Michael Thomas or a Ted Ginn deep or a, or a Jared cook. You know I mean? I, I, w- I wouldn't put that sort of expectation on it. Yeah. I'm just assuming, you know, he's, he's back at the bench and a special teams guy for the moment, but you know, the Texans yeah. could use some young cornerbacks that, uh, <laughs> they could, they could, uh, be there in case, you know, something happens because, uh, Looks like their starting slot is going to be Aaron Colvin, who's been a, a big failure to this point. And he, he, he might be uh, on the bench or gone if he doesn't get it together pretty quickly. Let me ask you one, one last thing, because you, you grew up a Saints fan. We have them to start the season. So 
what are you expecting on Monday night? Well, here's the interesting thing. I, I still think uh, the Saints are probably top two or three team in the league when it comes to talent. Uh, the other thing, though, is you look at over the last two years, and they haven't started off so well. Last year they got blasted at home by Tampa Bay. Felt like they gave up 1,000 yards to Ryan Fitzpatrick. Um, year before that, they started off poorly, got beaten pretty badly in Minnesota, uh, lost to New England at home uh, before going on a run. So uh, I, I still think they're really, really talented. I, I'm not sure if, if you're a Houston team that's coming in with significant questions in the defensive backfield, I, I don't know if you want to be playing Drew Brees week one. I do think that uh, adding Laramie Tunsil, he's going to play immediately because they need him. And, and this is a tough spot where, you're going into a place that you know is going to be really, really loud, really fired up in week one. Um, and and from a Saints point of view, I, I'm sure they would have aimed to to cause a lot of havoc on that side of the line uh, with Marcus Davenport and, and whoever else would, would probably come off that edge. Um, but I, I don't – if you put it on paper, right, I, I, don't, I, don't see, I don't see anybody going to pick Houston in this game. With that said – historically, New Orleans has not been the greatest team early in the season. So I think it's one of those where can you go in there and in week one after you just bolstered your roster with a, a premium player at a premium position? Look, man, I, I think this adds a feeling of belief in that locker room if you're Houston. Yeah, I think you can go in there and win on paper. Should they? Probably not. But in week one, things happen. Force a couple of turnovers. Uh, keep Deshaun Watson upright. And, and yeah, I think they could sneak in there and, and pull it off. You just made a pretty good point that I hadn't even thought about. But yeah, New Orleans is loud and they've got four new offensive linemen this year that haven't played together at all. And uh, one of them has not played together with anybody even yet. It, it, it might, might be doing a practice as we speak. So yeah, that, that could be a major issue in New Orleans. Well, yeah. And I, I think, look, that's, that's where in these week one games, you see crazy things happen. And it could happen either way. If, if you go in there and there's some confusion on that line, and, and I guarantee you, Dennis Allen, the Saints defensive coordinator, is going to know that. And, and he's going to know that. Hey, here's the other thing, too. Uh, you know, I, I really like Duke Johnson. We obviously covered him down here with the, with the Hurricanes. And uh, I, I actually uh, covered Carlos Hyde as, in high school. He was at Naples High School. So we followed their careers. I think they're both really good players. Um, but can you go in with two guys who, who are just learning the scheme and expect them to, to generate any sort of a running game early on with new offensive linemen in a place that's very loud? Uh, that's going to be tough. And, and you know the quarterback's best friend is the ability to lean on that running game. So um, it wouldn't surprise me a bit if they try to do some things early on, trying to uh, you know get the ball in Duke's hands, maybe some quick passes, things like that, to get Deshaun into a rhythm. But, yeah, I mean, <laughs> the, the longer – the, the more times you're in third and long, even second and long, and Dennis Allen can dial up a blitz, the greater a chance that you're going to confuse that offensive line, um, especially in a loud environment. So, I mean, those are all the reasons why I, I think it would be tough to go in there and win. At the same time, man, imagine you're in that locker room and, and you've been sitting there. You know, players know. Players know more than media knows. Pl players know more than any of us know where their defici deficiencies are. And you're like, man, we are all in now. We, we are all in, and we have solidified the weakest spot on this team. Uh, that can help going into a week one game, a real confidence, a real feeling of not only is this division, again, up for grabs with, with Andrew Luck retiring, but we've solidified ourselves. So, um, you know, I, 
I, it's a tough matchup week one because we know what Drew Brees can do when he gets time. Um, but, you know, on the flip side of that, we've seen crazy things happen. You know, uh, we're talking on Tuesday afternoon, and, and I forgot to mention this when we were talking about Kenny Stills, and, and you brought it up a little bit, and, and, and you know, some of the stuff that, you know, he did with uh, kneeling during the anthem and the, and the stuff with uh, coming out against the owner. And what's real interesting is it's almost like the Stills thing opened up the can of worms because there's a new article that's out uh, today with DeAndre Hopkins saying that he he wasn't happy with what happened with Bob McNair and he almost didn't show up and, you know, he was, you know, upset. And, you know, in, in a way he, he took a little bit of the other side and all this stuff that Bob McNair had, had done, you know, beyond that whole incident. And so he, he took it all and, and had that big perspective. But I find it super interesting. And, and we've talked about it on this show, Clay, about how this is a deal that would not have been done a couple of years ago or a year ago with, with Bob McNair. So it's, it's extremely interesting. And I feel like the Texans organization has been, done almost a, an entire 180 since Bob McNair passed away a few months ago. And, and let me tell you this about Kenny Stills. Uh, you will, there is nobody in the league that works harder off the field uh, to improve the community. And, and I think that was part of, and this is just my opinion. I think the thing that kind of stoked some of the, the fire with this was, uh, I believe Jay-Z, and I, and I don't have the direct quote in front of me, but he made a comment, something to the effect of, I think we've moved past kneeling. And and I think what was uh, perhaps misunderstood here was can, kneeling is is the <laughs> probably the most minor out of the things that Kenny Stills does. Not most minor. It's the most visible, for sure, on a national basis. Um, but that guy works so hard to, to really practice what, what he's preaching here. There is nobody that is out in the community anymore. As a matter of fact, Adam Gase told us last year, he said, my, my, sometimes with Kenny, I get a little worried about him because on Tuesdays, the player's day off, I'll try to text him or call him about something minor, and I can't get a hold of him until Tuesday night. And then I find out later that he's been out working with law enforcement. He's been out working with police. He's been out uh, working with kids, bringing people together. Um, he, he spends his off season traveling around in a van, going to places and, and meeting people that are, are facing the circumstances that he talks about. Um, so look, I, it's, I understand this is a real hot button topic. Um, uh, the thing with Kenny that I think gets lost in a lot of this on a national basis, perhaps for people who don't really know him is he moved past kneeling a long time ago. He may still kneel and he does still kneel. But the work that he does in the community is second to none. Um, with that said, so all, all of that is background. He's not somebody who uh, he's going to disrupt the locker room because I think people understand the type of work that he puts in. Um, and he's also not somebody who allows any of this, uh, the off the field stuff or the kneeling, the, the work that he does to lessen what he does on the field, what he does in the practice field, what he does in the meeting room, what he does studying film. So, um, you know, he's going to be missed down here in a number of ways by, by a lot of people who, um, you know, really looked to him as somebody who, who went out into the community and practiced what he preached. And he was also, from what we understand, one of the last guys to leave the field signing autographs and taking selfies and that kind of thing too, right? Every day, every day, every day. He, he, and, and that was, you know, I think he felt like because he was the most visible current player, along with Eric Reed, um, but top two when it came to most visible current players who still kneeled after Colin Kaepernick 
uh, what, do you, what do you call it? Uh, I, I guess he's, he's still active, but after he was no longer on an active roster, um, that he, he felt a sense of obligation to make sure that, that he did all of the other important things to, to, to generate goodwill and, and make, make it very clear that he, I think he felt like if he just kneeled and didn't do the rest of this, then, then people would able to be able to point to that and say, okay, well, what else have you done? Well, you know, what, what good does this do if you're not doing anything else? And, and so the time that he spends with fans at practice, yes, that's part of it. Um, but he would do things that uh, he, he, he pretty much organized a mental health seminar here a few weeks ago. And uh, I, I actually came out and told my own story a few months ago about uh, my, my dealings with mental health. And um, so I went to the Dolphins PR guy who's fantastic. And I said, hey, just, you know, the next time this pops up, we'd love to be a part of this. And he, he shook his head and smiled. And he said, hey, Kenny did that on his own. Um, we didn't even know about it. So he does so much that is, is you know, in addition to the kneeling that, um, you know, if you're, if you're looking for somebody in the community, and I, I think he and J.J. Watt will hit it off because it's obvious that J.J. Watt does a ton of that stuff as well. Um, so I, I'm, I'm really interested to see how the, the two of them can kind of collaborate and find ways to make this world better and, and make the community down there better. The other guy he's going to hit it off with is Eric Reed's brother, Justin, who's the starting safety for the Texans. There you and, go. And that's going to be a game to circle on the calendar, Clay, because we are playing Carolina here in a few weeks, and it's going to be Kenny Stills and Eric Reed and Justin, and everybody's going to be on the field at the same time. So that that kind of that's going to be fun. Yeah, yeah. And look, I know I know there are a lot of people who've been very public that they're kind of tired of hearing about this, and I and I understand that. Um, I think from our perspective in in the South Florida media, and and I think you probably know this being around athletes. You're, it's rare that you find players who are willing to be so open about things um, and and discuss a lot of it. Because, look, man, this is a macho sport. It is show no weakness and, and all of that. And Kenny's one of those guys who was always willing to sit there and take every question. Um, and, and, and we knew, he knew, and, and the Dolphins media relations people knew that he was going to get bombarded with questions with the Jay-Z stuff. He sat there and he took every question. And, and you know, so I know you – I get it. A lot of people probably are are, are tired are tired of hearing about this because you'll see the responses on Twitter that say, "Oh, stick to football." All that. This is bigger than football. Um, you know, whether or not you agree with the kneeling, remove that and and watch what he does in the community and and pairing with JJ Watt and and guys who on that team I know do a lot in the community as well. And and so from a remove the football, remove the kneeling from a strictly helping the community standpoint, you had a really uh, a guy who's going to do a lot of that work. Well, we can't wait to see how all this comes together on Monday night and, and how this whole, whole thing unfolds with, with all of these new players. Really appreciate you giving us this great information on all these guys. Thanks so much for doing this, Clay. Anytime, man. It'll be fun. I'm ready to get this thing kicked off. Excellent insight from Clay Ferrero from ABC in Miami. I'll bring in my Browns insider shortly before I get to him. Got to talk about our new partners at mybookie.ag. And hey, if you found $100 on the street, you just were walking along, and there it is. Would you pick it up or you just keep walking? Of course, you got to take that money. So why do you keep picking winners and not betting on them? That's why I go to mybookie. You should too. It's fast. It's easy. They pay when you win. 
let's face it, where you're betting is just as important as who you're betting on. I wouldn't be telling you guys to bet with them if they weren't the best. Do the smart thing. If you're going to bet football this season or throw some money maybe on the Texans, bet with my bookie. Did you know you could bet on games after kickoff? If by the second half it looks like your bet is going to lose, you can always just take the other side. If you're the kind of guy that likes to bet a little and win a lot, try a parlay. If all your picks come through, you'll multiply your winnings. And no matter how you bet, the NFL season is the best time of the year. Join now and MyBookie will double your first deposit. Use the promo code HOUSTON to activate the offer. That's promo code HOUSTON. Pretty easy to remember. Visit mybookie.ag today. You play, you win, you get paid. Joining me now, Locked On Browns host Pete Smith from the Locked On Podcast Network. And Pete, I don't know if you noticed, but Houston is now where Browns players go for the winter when they get older. We're like a condo in Florida right now for Cleveland. Pretty much. Uh, you guys got a few of our uh, hand-me-downs at this point. Let me start you off with Duke Johnson and Carlos Hyde, our new running back tandem. You guys know him pretty well. What can you tell us about those two? Duke Johnson is a very good receiving threat, a very, very good pass blocker. He hasn't ever gotten a workload in the NFL uh, that would be like a full-time running back. He hasn't had that since his time at Miami, where he was the career or the school record holder for, I think, still career yards. Uh, he's he's a very good elusive player. He will make a guy miss basically every time he gets the ball. Um, but I wouldn't look at him as sort of a traditional running back. I'd look at him more of a, you know, if you're giving him 12 to 15 touches a game, you should probably make like five of those passes and maybe use that as an extension of the running game, which should be really good for Deshaun Watson because he's a guy who has not been great at getting rid of the football on time, holds it too long, takes too many bad hits from that standpoint. And certainly Duke Johnson can block for him in that respect. But in terms of giving him a really good underneath or, or check down or an option that can sort of be, you know, you can open him up on a wheel or whatever. He's a guy you can move anywhere on the formation and he can create for you. And on offense with the likes of DeAndre Hopkins and, you know, you've got Will Fuller back and now you've got Kenny Stills coming in. You've got all this talent that Deshaun Watson could throw to. I think Duke Johnson may be just what the doctor ordered in terms of sort of spreading defenses out. So obviously the Houston Texans love them enough to give up what's going to end up being a third round pick short of catastrophic injury. Uh, I, I'm hoping they have sort of more of an open mind in terms of what he can do, because when you have a quarterback like Deshaun Watson, you don't need to be a traditional running attack. Uh, he can run the ball a little bit. He can dump off passes and all that because of his legs. Carlos Hyde, uh, I'll be honest, I thought the last carry he took last year was going to be his last carry in the NFL. Uh, The Browns got a fifth-round pick for him from a very desperate Jacksonville team that had lost Leonard Fournette for for an injury, and he did nothing for them. Uh, He got way too many carries with the Browns, and if you go into into Carlos Hyde basically looking at him going, he's a short yardage back that can come in, can get – you know, into the end zone by the goal line could get up, you know, can pick up third and two. Uh, if you don't have expectations that you're going to hand him the ball and he's going to get you four yards of carry. And you sort of look at him as a bigger, tough running back that can get you three when you need them, then you're going to be happy with Carlos Hyde. If you say, 
man, we, we, we need this guy to, to, to be a, a bell cow and lead the way for our rushing attack. You're going to sit there and be very frustrated because he's just not as athletic as he needs to be in terms of speed. He's going to get essentially what is blocked for him. And that's it. And that, you know, will lead you to be frustrated and want for other guys for the Browns. It was obviously why isn't Nick Chubb in the game? Why isn't he getting the ball? Um, when you have a, a, a doofus as a head coach and Hugh Jackson, you couldn't figure that out. So the GM had to trade uh, Carlos Hyde to sort of make that happen. But he, you know, he had, you know, his best game was that Monday night game against the jets. And even then he, you know, he had a pretty solid game to do. He's a three, seven average guy behind a, a pretty good offensive line at that point. It's just underwhelming. I don't have a tr- tremendous high bar for somebody like a Carlos Hyde, uh, but with Duke Johnson and Carlos Hyde, the key is going to be for me is whether they can block for Deshaun Watson pass block. Can those guys pick up that stuff? Because I, I believe that's probably one of the big reasons why Bill O'Brien was looking for a uh, veteran like Carlos Hyde instead of going with some of the young guys that they brought in. There was a couple of undrafted free agents and Higdon and Crockett. Neither one of them made the roster. They're, they're keeping a couple of guys that are primarily special teams around to back the, these two up. So can, can Hyde and Johnson are, are they both decent blockers in the past game? Carlos Hyde is a veteran. He knows what's going on. But it, but if you're saying uh, this, this is the guy I want to keep uh, Deshaun Watson up. That's 100% Duke Johnson. And, you know, for, for the guy, people who are like critical of Duke Johnson, they look at go, well, he, you know, how many yards did he have in all this? So much of him not getting the ball was because he was pass blocking. I mean, uh, last season, Duke Johnson played 42% of offensive snaps. And he doesn't have anywhere near the workload that would be suggestive of a guy who got that many snaps, but he's, he's not good. He's a great pass blocker. Like in, and he does not get nearly enough credit. So he gives you that dual threat on any pass play. He can pass block for you or he'd go out and catch passes. So he's great for that stuff. Like he will keep your guy upright and he's a like he will run routes like a receiver does. So for a team that's willing to be creative with him and sort of look at this and go, wow, this could be a really a weapon for a team that wants to be pass oriented, especially with a young line like they have where they may be more pass pro oriented anyway, that may be a better fit for them than anything else. I mean, Hyde is okay. He's not going to kill you, but I just think if you're any situation where you can have Duke Johnson out there blocking for you, you, you will have Duke Johnson out there. With Duke Johnson and Cleveland, was it the workload just about, you know, the Browns were not good, so the, the team would get behind, so that you, you weren't running the ball, or was it he, he just couldn't handle the workload? Uh, look, he, people got on him because he would, he would leave the field so often, like limping off, but he never missed a game. So it was always this weird criticism that, well, he, he's, he's made of glass, you know, he, he's not tough, but he never missed a game, and... And it wasn't so much, it never seemed like he couldn't take the pounding as so much as he never got the opportunity to take it. And obviously he did that uh, for four years with the, with the U. Uh, but again, you know, he's 215 pounds or somewhere in that area. He's not lacking thickness, but it just comes down to what is he better at? I mean, are, are, are in terms of usage, are you better off running him, you know, behind your center and guard and going up the middle? He can do that, but he's just so much better out in space, being able to make guys miss, that's sort of his game. And, and 
when it came to the Browns, I mean, when he started his career, he was a receiver who happened to run the ball a little bit uh, initially, which was he was really good for uh, good for that stuff. And he had a thousand yards total offense uh, the second year with the Browns, but a lot of that was receiving. So he he his workload didn't really decline until this past year. And again, he was on the field a lot but it just stylistically didn't appear to fit with where Freddie kitchens and John Dorsey went with their vision of this team. And then obviously the two sides sort of came to a head and ultimately uh, came to the decision to trade him. Um, But it's not because they didn't think Duke Johnson was a good player. It just came down to their vision for the future. And ultimately Duke Johnson's uh, decision that he, he didn't want to be on this team anymore. He wanted to feel wanted and I think there's no question he gets that in Houston, but it's, it, it just turn, comes down to usage and, and where is he best at? And thus far, he's very good at catching passes, screens, and those types of things. He will get you yards. He will fight for yardage, but it's just not as good, not as effective as he is uh, getting the ball in space. Good stuff to know. Let me ask you about Barkevius Mingo because the Browns drafted him six years ago. You saw him for three years up in Cleveland before he went to Seattle. Uh, what what is he? What's left of of Barkevius Mingo at this point? Yeah, I loved Mingo uh, when he came out, so I was allowed wrong on him, like a lot of people. Um, he just doesn't have the heft and raw strength. His frame just doesn't seem to be able to support it. Where he can be a consistent disruptor and a guy who who's powerful enough to sort of run the arc without losing ground and he sort of gets run past things. So he's sort of evolved into uh, sort of a, a very good special teams contributor because he's so athletic and he can do so many things in terms of running around. And then he's a little bit of a <coughs> situational pass rusher type. And for a team like Houston, where they're using those outside linebackers with space, that may be beneficial for a guy like Mingo because he doesn't have to take as much contact on directly and you can sort of free run him, uh, whether it's up and around or, you know, inside blitz type stuff or whatever, you know, I don't think he's going to be more than a third, fourth option in that type of thing. But when you have the talent that the Houston Texans do with guys like JJ Watt and Whitney merciless and, and and those guys, um, he may get home on a few things simply because there's so much other stuff to account for, and he's just sort of hanging out and he flies around. And if you don't pick him up quickly, he may be able to do some damage on the quarterback. I wouldn't expect, you know, a huge impact on that front, but he's one of these guys. If you go in with the attitude that you don't have very much in terms of expectations with Mingo, he's the type of guy who will become a pleasant surprise. Um, he'll make some plays. You'll be like, Oh, uh, you know, Mingo again, type thing, as opposed to, you know, where he was with the Browns, where he's a six overall pick and you need to be a franchise pass rusher you know, the, 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 those, those pleasant surprises were met with, well, why aren't you doing this consistently? And, and Houston's in a situation where they don't need him to be that guy. He's sort of a, a bonus as opposed to a necessity. And in that respect, he, he, everywhere he seems to go, including coming away with a Super Bowl ring with the Patriots, he just seems to, to fill that role of pleasant surprise. Tight end Darren Fells is now the Texans number two tight end with Jordan Thomas hitting injured reserve. There was the third-round draft pick, Kahele Waring, that might have been in the top three of Texans' tight ends. But everything that we heard from 
him with you guys in Cleveland last year is he's a really good blocker. The Texans haven't had a good blocking tight end since C.J. Fedorowicz's uh, sudden retirement with concussions. What are the Texans getting with Darren Fells? I love Darren Fells. Uh, he had a ridiculously efficient season with the Browns in terms of pass catches. Uh, so uh, Jeff Lloyd, the other uh, the the host of Lockdown Browns, and I just always refer to him as playmaker because he had something like 11 catches on 12 targets uh, and ended up with three touchdowns, including the first ever touchdown of Baker Mayfield's career. Uh, and, and again, it's one of those where he just, every time the ball went his way, something good happened. He's a solid, but unspectacular blocker. He's, he's, he's very good because uh, in terms of his size and length, like he, it's very hard to get around him. It's very hard to reach, uh, to prevent him from reaching you. And from that standpoint, he's really good. Uh, but, but I, I, I would not undersell him. And the, and the Browns made the switch, letting go of, of fells and, and bringing in a guy like Demetrius Harris who can't catch at all. Uh, so the, I think the Browns fans are in for sort of a little bit of a, a shock in that respect, because they go from a guy who was just consistently pleasantly surprising and made some nice catches last year. And, and what was a probably career season in terms of his just luck of, of where he ended up in spots to a guy who can't catch at all. So yes, he will be a solid blocker for Houston, but don't be surprised when, you know, he starts making a few catches. And again, you're sitting there going, oh, Darren Fells, you know, first down or Darren Fells in the end zone, just because they've got so many other weapons that this six, seven, 260 pound guy is just sitting there open and Deshaun Watson could just easily get it to him for some, from some free plays or a couple touchdowns this year. Texans fans will take solid but unspectacular blockers at tight end with the way things have been going. Let me ask you about, um, because everybody in Houston and, and well, around the country, it's a consensus. It's like the, the sun is hot. Uh, the, the consensus is that Bill O'Brien overpaid for a bunch of guys and, and just made some weird and, and in some cases bad trades. But they did add a couple of guys that are pretty good, even though they, they lost Jadavian Clowney. How do you see the Texans in the AFC and in the AFC South? Do you think they're a Super Bowl contender more than they would have been, say, a few days ago? Yes, I do. Um, I think there's a couple things going on with the Texans. Part of this is, you know, they have to get a, a good pass protecting, you know, blindside tackle for Deshaun Watson, period or he's going to, his career is just going to be shortened. Uh, he takes a beating. Some of that is his own fault, but he, he takes a beating and more than he should. And left tackle has obviously been a huge problem for them. Um, part of this is obviously Andrew Luck's sudden retirement opens up this lane for the Houston Texans and the Houston Texans are sitting there looking at this going, you know, we may not be the, you know, the best team, but there's a, a a lane for us, and this is a league where if you can get to the playoffs, you've got a shot. And all of a sudden, you know, they they sort of, you know, Bill O'Brien needs to win. Uh, he needs they need to you know go to the playoffs for him to keep his job, I believe. Uh, and you get a guy that in Laramie Tunsil that immediately brings you a good left tackle. You get a receiver that probably won't get much attention until they start playing in Kenny Stills, who's a very solid receiver. Uh, they obviously got Duke Johnson. They, they just, you know, I, the Houston Texans obviously have some question marks on this defense now uh, by virtue of, of, of losing a guy like Clowney, but they have 
superstars at, at positions like JJ Watt. Uh, and they have, you know, players that can just do so much that I, I, I don't know if Super Bowls in the, in the cards for them, but I think they be instantly became the favorite to win the AFC South. Unless you believe in Nick Foles and the Jacksonville Jaguars, I, you know, I, I have some major questions with that team. Uh, I think Houston sort of just sort of saw a lane and has taken it. How many wins are those Browns going to get this year? I have them at 12. It, 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 here's the thing. The Browns could start the season two and four. The, the first six weeks of the schedule are brutal. They play the Rams. They play the, the Ravens. They play uh, some, some really talented teams right out of the gate. But if they can get through that at two and four or three and three, after that, after the bye week, uh, they, 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 they have to play the Patriots. They've got to play the teams like the Steelers. But they play the Cardinals. They play the Bengals twice in December. And those teams just seem like a hug at this point, just in, in terms of how bad they are. Uh, you know, the, the, they just have to they just have to beat the teams that are beatable and they're going to end up getting on a on a nice run after the after that bye week. And they can just rip off six or seven wins in a row without too much without too much stress. I, you know, I expect they will lose a game they probably shouldn't or two by virtue of, you know, being a relatively young team and a, and a newer team. But they just have so much talent that they can do so much damage. And I may end up going being too ambitious on that because the Steelers are probably better than I initially thought they were going to be. The Ravens are dangerous uh, if Lamar Jackson can throw the ball. But Baker Mayfield is great. Miles Garrett is great. They've just got so many good players right now uh, that if they can stay healthy and get through that first month and a half, they're, they're going to be in business. So hashtag factory of happiness. <laughs> it, it, well, here's the thing. It's it, like people will enjoy it, but it's going to be the entire thing. So many fans are going to be as they did so much last year is waiting for the other shoe to drop and something bad must happen uh, because that's just sort of how they've been wired for so long that anytime something good's there, that something bad's going to happen. I, I think Baker Mayfield is starting to get rid of that, but there's still that element of, uh, of, of waiting for the other shoe to drop. Now they're going to, uh, they're going to enjoy the wins, uh, you know, because they've been waiting for them. But there, there's always this sense that, you know, especially with teams like the Steelers who just have beaten them so so many times over the years, that they're they're, they're waiting for, to waiting almost for permission to believe in this that it's real. Interesting stuff. I, I tell you what, great information about all these players coming down to Houston. We're looking forward to see what they can do here on Monday Night Football, and I can't tell you how much I appreciate you coming on the show. Locked on Browns. If there are any Browns fans out there, go check them out. Pete Smith, along with our friend Jeff Lloyd over there. Thanks so much for doing this. Oh, thanks for having me. So there you go. Now you've got a ton more background on seven new Texans this year. If you enjoyed the show and you'd like to support us, go to our website, HoustonSportsTalk.net. Make a small donation. There's a donate button on the top right of the homepage or towards the bottom of the page if you're looking on your smartphone. Thanks again to our brand new sponsor, MyBookie. And if you forget the promo code or the website, it's all in the show description. Barring any major breaking news, Stephen and I will be back for the post-game show after the Saints game Monday. Enjoy your weekend. You're listening to Houston Sports Talk.
Don't forget to follow Houston Sports Talk on Facebook and Twitter. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, the Google Podcast app, or the Stitcher app. You can support us by giving us a five-star review on iTunes or by telling your friends about us. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.